the more we practice, the more we see that we have no idea what is going to happen next. This is true at more obvious levels like the delay of a start of a talk because of volume. At more obvious levels in some ways like every day people die that wake up in the morning and have no idea they're going to not make it to the end of the day. The change, the changing nature of life is so profound and unpredictable at our ordinary levels of life, but also at the more subtle levels of our practice, of our practice experience. We, in entering into just this moment, just landing right here, we start to really appreciate and see that we have no idea what the next moment will be. as we receive our experience, just what's happening, what's, what's this, what's this, what's this, when we are really present, we can be very surprised by the next arising. We seem to think we know what the next thing is going to be. And I think often perhaps we think that because it can be roughly in the category of right. Like probably a minute from now, I'll still be here sitting giving this talk. (laughs) But we don't know. But the, uh, this thinking that we do know what's going to happen. That tends to obscure this kind of very deep truth that we don't know what is going to happen. So many things that are added to our experience obscure this not knowing, obscure obscure this entering into this terrain of being fully open to the next moment without preconceived ideas, views, perspectives, beliefs. These habits of mind, these patterns of mind tend to obscure this truth that we don't know. What's coming next? We carry beliefs, ideas, views from the past into the present moment. Views about who we are, views about who other people are. And we think we know. We think we know who we are. We think we know how we're going to respond. What's next? We think we know who other people are. Maybe we can open to the possibility that we are not what we think we are. And that others are not what we think they are. And we project these views, these beliefs into the future. We create these worlds of thoughts that we, about some future that we take up residence in and believe will happen. It can be hard to see this. This evening as I was sitting in my room down 
in the teacher village, reflecting about this content and these ideas. And I imagined myself up here giving this talk. And because of the weather, there was a kind of a a recognition that I was going to have to go through something to get here. And it was kind of unknown what that going through would be. So there was a kind of connection with that. A connection that, you know, it's really windy out there. Trees can fall down. Maybe the golf cart could flip over, you know. So that kind of sense of not being sure if I'd get here. But then I realized that I had assumed that I would get into the process of getting up the hill. And that was still two hours away. I had no idea what would happen in those intervening two hours. It's so quick for us to pick up these ideas and just assume we know what's going to happen. I joined the Peace Corps in my mid-30s. And this was before I, I met the Dharma, I met the practice, but there was quite a startling experience that I had as I arrived or as I, as, I was, as I was making my way across the ocean in the plain. And I realized that I had no idea what was going to meet me on the other end of that plane ride. I could kind of envision what it would be like to be on the plane until it landed, but then there was no clue. In the way my mind worked at that point, there was almost this, this funny kind of belief that I wasn't going to get there because I couldn't envision it. I couldn't see what it would be. It almost felt like my life ended with that plane flight. But then the plane landed and each moment unfolded. The next moment, the next moment, the next moment. And it revealed itself. The experience revealed itself. When we think we know what's going to happen, that's a view, it's an idea, it's thoughts, it's a a world, a thought that is created. And the way our minds work, sometimes this view or this these thoughts can become self-fulfilling prophecies. Not always bad. The image, for instance, of my coming up here to give a talk, that becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy by remembering it and following through on that. And this is hopefully helpful that I showed up here tonight. But we can also, through what I was saying earlier, views and ideas we have about ourselves or others, we can kind of box ourselves in, box other people in, based on our our senses of, of who we are, who they are. And so views are a huge kind of obscuration of this entering into the kind of mystery of the moment and not knowing, really not knowing what the next moment will be. And even in the present moment, there are ways views enter into the present moment, but also concepts talked a little about concepts last week when I talked about delusion and how we 
often live our lives through concept and how easy it is for concept to be distorted by mistake or emotion. It's so easy for our ideas, our, what we are receiving, think we are receiving as experience to be um, distorted or altered through, again, our views, our ideas, our opinions. And so we don't just take in the world as it is, as I think it was Anais Nin who said, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. There's a deep truth to this that we begin to really recognize by looking at our minds. Now concepts are useful. I think I talked about that some last week too. That we need concepts to navigate the world. But it's helpful both to recognize that we are experiencing the world through concept, that everything that we experience, all of our experience is mediated through our mind, that we are not um, really in touch with what's out in the world. We're in touch with an internal construction that does a pretty good job of representing the world. The use of concepts stabilizes the world. It allows us to navigate. Concepts can be kind of a shortcut for us. if, if, If I had to figure out every time I walked into the dining hall what tables were and what forks and knives were, it would be exhausting. So this, this shortcut of concepts and perceptions helps us to navigate the world. And yet what we mistake is we think that we are accurately perceiving things rather than recognizing that we are perceiving things. That our mind is constructing what we are seeing. This is a way of entering into this present moment more fully to understand this constructed nature of mind, of what we are experiencing, the constructed nature of our experience. It is such a mystery, such a mind-blowing thing that we're living in. we can understand that we are navigating the world through concepts and still know that that is how we are. We can navigate through concepts and still understand that we are navigating through concepts. It's not that hard actually once we begin to to touch into it. We can understand concept as concept and understand how error-prone concept can be. I talked about the, the elephant, the blind people and the elephant last time and I talked about the mistaking a rope for a snake. These, these ways in which we solidify, reify, consolidate our experience around perceptions and take things to be. This is the way it is. That's a view, a concept. It's so pervasive. And one of the ways, again, even experiencing the world through concept, we, you know, the stabilizing that happens through concept keeps us from really touching into that truth of not knowing. Again, because we've got our concepts, 
we think they're right and we're experiencing things through that, we're not really open to the dynamic nature of what's happening. And so entering into the present moment, entering into just being here in this moment is a way of beginning to explore this truth of not knowing. Thoughts, concepts, views can be seen as just arising. We can know them as experience that's arising as opposed to simply believing them. We can more fully open into this not knowing. The very nature of what we are doing here, the very nature of awakening, even this uh, word vipassana, seeing clearly, sometimes translated as insight. The very nature of insight is that we have no idea what we're looking for. And so if we're And we tend to be drawn to the familiar. And we tend to be drawn to what we already know. That comes through views, through concepts, through ideas, beliefs. All of those things kind of shape our mind through what we have learned in the past. And we tend to be drawn to the familiar. It's comfortable. It feels navigable. And yet the very uh, work that we're doing is helping us to see things that we've never seen before. And if we're orienting to our experience through what's familiar, what we're already aware of, if we're orienting to the world in that way, we won't see what we're not looking for. As we look for something, the very act of looking can obscure understanding, can obscure the unfamiliar. Saito Utejaniya tells a story about how sometimes it's easier to see something, especially something that we don't know what it is. It's easier to see something when we stop looking. He tells a story of um, being in, he was teaching a retreat at Insight Meditation Society in New England and Um, one of the um, staff or somebody close to the IMS center was kind of driving him around, taking him on a tour of the area. And um, he said, the the person who was driving, Sayadaw, said, there's a, a deer alarm on this car. There's so many deers in the area that he had put a deer alarm on his car, which is a, a kind of a high-pitched sound which will alert the deer that the car is is coming and that they'll kind of stay away. So there was a deer alarm on the car. And, and uh, he said, you, you know, you can hear it. It's possible we can hear it. It's not at a higher pitch than we can hear, so you can hear it. Can you hear it? And Say- Sayadaw said he tried to hear it. You know, like, can I hear that? Can I hear that? And he couldn't hear it. But then when he stopped trying to hear it, he heard it. Again, he didn't know what he was looking for. And when he relaxed and just took in experience more without any idea about what he was looking for, there it was. It popped into into view. 
or into sound, popped into sound. We hear sometimes in Dharma talks descriptions of things. I, um, in some of my early retreats at IMS, maybe it was even my very first three-month course, um, I heard the teachers talking in, uh, in some of the Dharma talks about an experience around impermanence of just seeing things kind of popping in and out and it sounded so cool. I really wanted to see it. And uh, I suffered a lot around wanting to see it and trying to see it and imagining that I could see it. And at some point, um, while I was suffering over this, <laughs> I realized that I was suffering, you know, I, was, I kept thinking I was suffering because I wasn't having the experience that I wanted to have. But what I discovered is that, I was, I was, I, what I discovered is I was wanting to tell the teacher that I'd had the experience. Because I, ha- I, w- I, I found myself waking up into this, this thought of telling the teacher that I'd had this experience and how, how great it was that I was having this experience. And we were like laughing and just celebrating in the interview room. I was having this great fantasy about how great it was to tell the teacher I'd had this experience. And I had no idea. That was, that was a real kind of eye-opener to me of how I had no idea what I was looking for. I had no idea what I wanted. I wanted, what I wanted was for somebody to praise me. That was an eye-opener too. You know, so we, we really don't know. Often we don't know what we're looking for. And so this perspective of curiosity about what is this experience? Opening to this not knowing. And really, this moment, right now, we think we know what it is, but look at it. What's here? This can be a a kind of a way to enter into a real intimacy, that being with an intimacy that we talked about in terms of investigation, it can support us to be here, just meeting this experience without preconceived ideas. Or if we have preconceived ideas to recognize, this is an idea that's arising right now. That's act- Wow, that's actually what's happening, is there's an idea arising about what I, I'm seeing. That can be startling to recognize that. I'm seeing experience through a concept. And sometimes we can actually touch into just this experience, just this, without preconceived ideas. Sometimes what's called bare attention. This reminds me of the um, the Buddha's teaching to Bahia. Many of you probably are familiar with this teaching. Uh, a, a wanderer who was not one of the Buddha's followers, but had heard about the Buddha from a distance, had traveled a long way to see the Buddha. And he got to where the Buddha was residing and went to ask, where can I find the Buddha? I want to ask him a question. And they said, well, he's gone out for alms round over to the village. And so Bahia followed and found the Buddha making his way through the village on alms round. And Bahia said, please teach me the Dharma. I've traveled a long way. 
And uh, he introduced himself. He told him what his name was. And the Buddha said, Bahia, now is not the time. I'm going on alms round. And Bahia asked again and said, we don't know when you or I will die. Please teach me the Dharma. He said, please teach me the Dharma in brief even. He just wanted a little short Dharma talk. And again the Buddha said, not now, it's time for alms. But Bahia asked a third time and in uh, many of the stories in the texts, when somebody asks the Buddha something three times, he will do it. And so he stopped and uh, gave Bahia a teaching. Now, I'll repeat this from memory. I don't have it in front of me. It is said that upon hearing these words, Bahia became fully awakened. So, listen. He said to Bahia, in the scene, he said, this is how you should train yourself. In the scene should be only the scene. In the herd should be only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. So that was the instruction. You should train yourself thus. In the scene is only the scene, in the herd is only the herd, in the sensed is only the sensed, in the cognized is only the cognized. This is essentially recognizing experience just for what it is. This includes recognizing there is seeing happening and a, the concept or the cognition of what is seen. Knowing that to be just something that's cognized. So seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The sensed is only the sensed refers to those other three senses. And in the cognized is only the cognized. And so essentially he was offering a form of bare attention, of choiceless awareness. This question came up the other day, where is this found in the Satipatthana? This is one of the main places this teaching is found, is in this teaching to Bahia. Notice your experience just for what it is. Just this, just this, just this. The mystery of experience. And he went on, the Buddha went on to explain to Bahia the value of doing this. So he didn't just give him the instruction and say, go off and practice and see what you see. He kind of gave him a pointer. He said, when for you in the scene is only the scene, in the herd is only the herd, in the sensed is only the sensed, in the cognized is only the cognized. When that's true for you, there will be no you in terms of that experience. When there is no you in terms of that experience, there is no you there. And when there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so he pointed how this practice of entering into the present moment, entering into this, essentially this not knowing, just this, what's this? Creates the conditions for the understanding and insight into not self to arise. He didn't give him a particular teaching on not self, he just said, when you explore experience in this way, this is the result. There's no you in terms of that experience. You're not interpreting experience in terms of you. 
It's just experience. You're not interpreting experience in terms of I or me or mine. This is the process that the Buddha called conceiving. We conceive ourselves in relation to other things, experience. The Buddha had another pithy teaching about an, a, a one-line a one teaching. This is, this is a, another one of these kind of deep, penetrating sentences. He said, in whatever way they conceive, in whatever way anyone conceives, the fact is ever other than that. This again reminds me of the elephant story You know, the conceiving around this is what an elephant is and the attaching to that view because I had experienced it. Holding to that view and coming to blows with the other people who had different views. It's not wrong to say this part of the elephant is like this. But again, in whatever way they conceive There's more to the picture. And in fact, here what this is pointing to is when we are, when there is conceiving happening, when this, when experience is interpreted in terms of I, me, or mine, there is a lot that's not being seen. The fact is ever other than that. And so this simple attention helps us to enter into, maybe stumble in, in this way of, of uh, you know, he didn't tell Bahia what the experience of not-self would be like. He didn't say, here, look for this. This is what not-self will be like. He said, notice experience like this. In the scene is only the scene. When for you in the scene is only the scene, there will be no you in terms of that. And so a kind of a pointer to what is this experience, a pointer to this possibility of something unknowable, unfamiliar, that might be available to be known in the experience. And this is some of what we do in our talks. We point to things, we speak to things. Sometimes we can hear them. And then uh, later in our experience, we experience something because there's been a, a kind of a pointing in a, in, in a talk or in a meeting with a teacher we might see something differently because our, our mind has been shaken away from its familiar things. There is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. It's not that the you disappears. It's really recognizing the truth of how it's always been. Misha pointed to that last night. It's the truth of how it's always been. It's just the seeing here the understanding of something that's hard to see because we are so familiar with looking at things through the perspective of self. Sometimes 
sometimes we even, um, I was talking a few minutes ago about seeing things that somebody talks about in a Dharma talk, that the, the hearing of it, we don't really get it or it, at the time, but then later it's like, oh, that's what they were talking about. Sometimes something can be so out of our range of experience that we can't even hear when it's spoken. I'm quite sure this happened to me on another three-month course when um, I was doing my practice and going to the talks and listening to what they said and and uh, some insight arose in my experience. I don't even remember at this point what it was. But it felt very profound and very important. And I was kind of almost, you know, frustrated at the teachers. Why haven't they been telling us about this? This is important. This, they should be t- talking about this. So this was one of those things that I I felt like I'd stumbled into by myself with nobody ever having spoken about it. And these things happen. You know, we can see things at times that haven't been pointed to. If we are really just here and available to be here. I almost wrote the teachers a note, but I decided not to. And in the next three Dharma talks, I heard them say it. And so it was pretty obvious to me that they hadn't just magically, you know, picked up on my, my mind thoughts and started putting it into the Dharma talks, but that they'd probably been saying it for weeks. And I had not consciously heard it. And so this too can happen because of our, you know, when something is that unfamiliar, sometimes it's hard to hear. So these teachings to Bahia, to me, really point to the simplicity of our practice. The instructions he gave to Bahia were so simple. And then he pointed to the possibility of freedom that comes from that simplicity. Not from trying to look for not-self, but just knowing experience. And the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard. So what's the difference between this kind of not knowing that I'm talking about right now and the not knowing of ignorance, which we can think of also as a not knowing and not understanding. The not knowing of ignorance is really a... um, no, it's a taking things, it's, it's a looking at experience through these views, these beliefs. It's taking things to be permanent, reliable, self. It's interpreting experience through those perspectives, that perspective of me. And so the not knowing of ignorance is not understanding the truths of impermanence, unreliability, not self. And it comes from not connecting directly with experience. It's the habit of mind before we we are introduced to this possibility of meeting the moment in a different way. And this deeper kind of not knowing is entered into by precisely connecting to the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of experience. Comes out of awareness and contacting experience directly in the scene is only the scene. 
entering into the present moment. Letting go of views that create a rigid sense of what is happening, what will happen, who I am, what others will be, will do, who they are, what's supposed to happen. And so this uh, kind of entering into this not knowing is a, it's a form of kind of at least recognizing views for what they are, that they are views. I've talked about this in some of the meetings with you. You know, to just recognize it's so powerful to notice that we're holding a view. When we're not aware that we're holding a view, it is simply taken to be true but we can become aware, oh, there's a view, there's a belief happening right now. And we can, uh, in that recognition that there's a belief happening, there's some space in which, and we don't have to in that moment tell ourselves not to believe it, but at least to recognize this is being believed. This particular belief may be connected to a relatively close reflection of reality, or it may be completely off. But the first step is really recognizing, oh, this is a belief, and it's being believed. And so if this entering into the present moment is partly about letting go of views. How does right view enter into the mix? Isn't that just another view that gets in the way? The views that the Buddha offers as wise view are views that he articulated having come to an understanding of the nature of experience, impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience. The understanding of how clinging creates suffering. And that this this is the place that the views that the Buddha offers us where they land. Clinging creates suffering. Clinging creates suffering precisely because things are impermanent. They are, because they are impermanent, they are unreliable as a place to cling to as for lasting happiness. They're all directly connected, these truths that the Buddha discovered and then articulated. And as Nisha said, you know, the Buddha didn't, make this up. It's more like discovering the law of gravity. He discovered these truths and then articulated them, like Newton discovered the law of gravity and then articulated equations that help us to navigate the law of gravity. Although we were always navigating the law of gravity, even before Newton discovered it, we were always we always knew that I couldn't place this glass in midair. We knew that. And at some level, maybe we also know the truth of not self. We do at some level know the truth of impermanence. But as the The Mahabharata says in one place in one of this great Hindu epic poem, um, one, uh, it's it's kind of a play really, and uh, one of the characters is asking another character, what is the most wonderful thing in the world? And this uh, character responds, this is what I think is most wonderful. that people seeing daily 
the truth that everyone dies, never once does it really enter that they too will die. Only the surface mind understands the actual truth doesn't penetrate. And so we know at some level these truths of impermanent, unreliable. But because we are orienting through concept, that stability of concept, we miss this truth. It's staring us in the face all the time. And so the views that the Buddha pointed to are in alignment uh, kind of with these truths that he discovered. And we can see in some ways the, we, could, we can frame perhaps, and as it was done in, in one sutta, hmm, do I have time for this? I'll try to do this quickly. There's a, a sutta, um, a householder, Ananda Pindika, was um, talking with some people from other traditions, and um, they were asking him, so, tell us what, what views the contemplative Gautama has. That's, that was the name for the Buddha, and saying the contemplative Gautama was maybe slightly disrespectful. So tell us what views the contemplative Gautama has. And uh, Ananda Pindaka responded, Venerable sirs, I don't know entirely what views the Blessed One has. Well, well, they said, so you don't know the views of the contemplative Gautama. So, well, tell us what the views of the monks are then. And he says, I, I, I can't tell you that either. And they said, well, then tell us what your views are. And, and uh, Ananda Pindika was clever. He said, well, why don't you tell me your views first? And then I will tell you my views. And so they each, there were 10 of them or so, and they each described their views and they all um, said something along the lines of, the cosmos is eternal. Only this is true, anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. And then the next person would say something like, the cosmos is not eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. And there were many of these views. The, the cosmos is, is um, uh, finite. The cosmos is infinite. The... Um, Soul and the body are the same. The soul and the body are different. So all these different views directly contradicting each other and, and uh, each believing that their view was the only true view. And so Ananda Pindika said in response to this, as for the one who says the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless, this is the sort of view I have, that person's view arises either from his own inappropriate attention or from the words of another, independence on the words of another. This view has been brought into being, is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is unreliable. Whatever's unreliable is suffering. This one thus adheres to that stress, submits himself to that stress. And so the, the very holding to the view, the Anandapindika's pointing to, holding on to that view, you are suffering. And so he said that for all of the, he went through all of the views that they all spoke to. He said all of these views held to in this way. This is suffering. You are submitting yourself to suffering. And so then he said what, he, what his view was. In his view, he said, here's the view I have. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently originated. That is inconstant. 
impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is unreliable. Whatever is unreliable is suffering. Whatever is suffering is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. The uh, wanderers tried to put his own argument back on him saying, well, you're just holding on to that view. You're suffering. You're, you're suffering by holding on to that view. And Ananda Pindika said, when whatever has been brought into being is seen as suffering right there, I understand it is impermanent. It's unreliable. It's suffering. And there is the release from it in the seeing of it. And so what Ananda Pindika was pointing to was holding a view that clinging to views is suffering is onward leading. This is the sort of view that the Buddha held that he offered to us. He offered views that help us to transcend views. To recognize that holding to any view holding on to, clinging, saying only this is true, anything else is wrong, that this is suffering, this clinging is suffering. And when we notice that, when we notice that we're clinging to whatever, to sense experience, to uh, concepts, to views, when we notice that clinging, the seeing of that, we understand the suffering of it. And the mind begins to release it. And so this, at first the views that the Buddha offers are more of a kind of conceptual wisdom to help us recognize where the kind of traps are in our minds. But the understanding that results from the seeing of that clinging from the seeing of the impermanent, unreliable, not-self-nature of experience. That understanding is not a concept. It's a direct experience. It's a shift of understanding. This shift of understanding allows us to be with things as they are. This entering into this mystery of experience. We don't know what the next thing will be. What the next experience, the next moment, we have no idea. It's useful to recognize that as we begin to touch into this truth that we don't know what the next moment will bring, that we have relationships to that, often relationships of fear, a sense of vulnerability, maybe of confusion, a feeling of insecurity, This too is something that needs to be seen and known and recognized. Not to try to convince ourselves, I should just be with things, you know, be with this not knowing when what's arising, part of what's arising the, 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 uh, in this moment's experience is fear. And that can be known as an arising. It's just, oh, this too is... This is cognized. And the cognized is only the cognized fear is happening right now. So there are some different relationships we have to this not knowing. And maybe a little useful to unpack a little bit what's going on there. Sometimes the, um, the fear or the insecurity, the vulnerability, vulnerability around this not knowing is about a projection into the future that we're thinking about I don't know what's going to happen maybe something bad will happen and so we pick up some imagined future and then get afraid of that in this not knowing place our minds sometimes will fill it in with something 
and then respond or react to that. And so in that case, actually, it's not really the not knowing that we're reacting to. It's the imagined scenario we're reacting to. Another way, you know, that, that we can react to the not knowing is kind of to the very idea of not knowing. That we might just like kind of sit here with this, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh no. What do I do? And it's more about the idea than the actual experience. So this, the fear or the insecurity there is related back to a sense of me that feels vulnerable, that feels like it's the me, it's, it's me that this not knowing is happening to. On one retreat I had a experience of having this fear around just like, wow, it's like, I felt like, I felt like I was like going to step off the edge every single step. Just this really kind of entering into just no idea what's going to happen next. Very disorienting kind of state. And so there was the fear coming up and my teachers, as we do, encouraged me to notice this fear. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to meet this fear. I'm going to meet this fear and I'm going to meet this not knowing what is this fear about anyway. And so I was doing walking meditation as I was exploring this. And I would take a step. It's like, okay, where's the not knowing? There is no not knowing right now. The step is known. And I take the next step and it's like, well, that step's known too. And I could see that the mind was just slightly projecting, again, it's that sense of slightly projecting into the future. I'm not going to know the next thing. But when I actually looked at this moment, it's like the knowing was just revealing itself. It kind of felt like I was standing on the edge of an abyss. And I was being asked to step into the abyss. And as I took that step, just the trust, take that step, it's like the uh, edge of the cliff grew out and there I was standing on the edge of the abyss again. Every step was known. But the feeling of going to be, of stepping into something unknown, So it takes some kind of trust. To meet this experience, even sometimes, sometimes even this moment, in that experience, every step is like, that's known. I know what's happening there. It's like, there's the pressure and the pulsing and the tension. It's just so clear in that moment. Sometimes, even being in the present moment, just the entering into the present moment, even that feels like unknowable, like slippery, streaming, like there's nowhere to land. Like as soon as the mind touches any experience, it's already dissolving. It's just vanishing, vanishing, vanishing. So sometimes even this feels very slippery. And yet this is a a kind of an entering into this groundlessness. There is nowhere to land. The only problem is we think there should be somewhere to land. It's like our lives are an endless falling. Joseph mentions an analogy of parachuting. You know, first you jump out of an airplane, free falling can be kind of exhilarating. 
the feeling of the falling, but then maybe you realize you forgot your parachute. (laughs) Then there's terror. But then, in this practice, there's the understanding. There's no ground. There is no ground. And so trust, this takes trust. Letting go and trust to enter this moment. Let's sit for just a moment. Just this. So we'll have some time for walking and maybe if you haven't been coming for the chanting, see what you've not known. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.